Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Kim. And this is The Department, a podcast about trends and how they define the world around us. Welcome, everyone, to episode 81 of The Department. (laughs) Um, We're back after a few weeks off. um, And actually, I think we're probably going to take next week off because it is the Memorial Day holiday. And not that we tend to do a lot for that, but I know for one, I'm going camping. (laughs) Oh, that's fun. Yeah, I don't know how fun it'll be. But, you know, it'll (laughs) be like quiet. I mean, I'm going camping in an RV, so it's not like I have to like, you know, forage the land and build a fire by rubbing two sticks together. Are you bringing the cats? No, we have a cat sitter. (laughs) Oh, okay, good, okay. Yeah. Um, I'm going to read books and catch up on stuff and, you know, watch antenna television and whatever else. Mm. Um, Maybe do some thrifting along the way, because we're going to West Texas. I have no idea what it's going to be like. Um, But anyway, we were off for, like, was it been two weeks now, Kim? I don't even know. I think so. I think it's two weeks, yeah. Uh Um, I went to Japan, and Kim went to Wisconsin. So, Kim... Did you see any hot new trends while you were in Wisconsin? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> That's hot. what this episode is about. I know. And I wasn't even, I was, I, you know, <laughs> I go to my parents' place and mm-hmm. I pretty much like go to the grocery store a bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's really interesting. I did go to a concert, like a show with my, my sister and my brother-in-law, which was really ho- weird and hilarious to see it. It was like this... Um, they do it's like a cover band they have a massive following you know my my partner Neil was there too and he's just like I have not been in a room of so many like normies in a really (laughs) long time and I was like yeah everyone looks really like midwestern normal like tank top and jeans well, was it one of those cover bands that is just strictly covers one band, or is it no. like a you know variety? Oh, interesting. Oh no, it was like all over. It was everything from like Taylor Swift and Miley Cyrus. Oh to, wow! To like yeah yeah to like um uh you know like seventies rock to you know musical theater. I mean they they did it all, and they yeah they had a massive following, and it was it was definitely it was interesting to see like the energy and just how they really brought the fans out. They had so much merch. It was just, really? just so much merch and like they sell so much merch and apparently these people, um, they, you know, they used to be engineers and things like that. And they, they left their full time jobs because this was such a profitable business for them. Oh, no, it's hella uh-huh. lucrative. We went to see in 2021 back in Lancaster County, a Fleetwood Mac cover band. I guess then maybe oh, if they yeah. only cover one band, they might be called like a tribute band. Um, and we saw them at the American Music Theater, which usually hosts like Christian rock and like country music. And it's a sit down theater. And we were definitely the youngest people there. And we are not spring chickens. And it was sitting down. And it was actually like a really incredible show. But those tickets were so expensive. Wow. And we got the impression that the band had like flown in <laughs> for that show. I mean, like, that's how much money is in being a cover band. Yeah. It's a really it's a really good job. If you're if you're really good and you have a lot of merch, oh my gosh, it really is. It's a great career. 
The Fleetwood Mac cover band was incredible. And if I think if I had just like not worn my contacts for the show, yeah. I would have thought I was really seeing Fleetwood Mac. Oh, you know? Wow. <laughs> but unfortunately, I had a good prescription in. So I yeah. was like, oh, it's like a little off. But yeah, yeah it was no, really good. not quite. But um, <laughs> I mean, and also Fleetwood Mac music is really technically difficult. I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, they were incredible. Like, wow. I... They were, you know, they ended with the chain, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. iconic. And I was, like, moved by it. And I had to remember, like, I've seen Fleetwood Mac, the real Fleetwood Mm -hmm. Mac, in concert. And I had to remind myself, because that (laughs) one, when I saw actual Fleetwood Mac, I mean, I was, like, crying. Tears of joy, tears of sadness, just the whole time. It was so good. And I was starting to get that feeling. And I had to be like, Amanda, you are in a sit-down show in a weird theater in Lancaster County, and this is a cover band. <laughs> Just relax. It's like the tears are pouring down your yeah, face. Yeah, yeah, it was really, really intense. So yeah, I mean, I don't know, it's probably too late for us to start a cover band, but if any of you are looking for a more lucrative career path, I, I recommend it. Uh, yeah, exactly. And if anyone is in the Midwest, particularly in Wisconsin, Indiana, or Illinois, the band is called, I think it's called like Rod Tough Curls and the Bench Press. <laughs> Um, you should go <laughs> check them out. They play all over. They play at like all of the, the the state festivals, and you know, also you know, just like just general concerts. And and the thing is, is they don't even have like an opening band. They play for like multi. They have two sets. They play for a really long time. Wow. And they, are, they love it, and they have like these crazy moves. It's, it was crazy. I mean, like the following was huge. It was hilarious. Uh, but they do need a better website. So you know, if anyone knows them. You, you know, you know where to look for a better um, re- website. It's right here. Um, we can definitely help you out with your website and merchandising strategy. Seriously, if you <laughs> need to hone in your merch strategy, I've got you. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, anyway, in this week's episode, as promised, we will be talking about the trends I saw on my trip to Japan. And as we noted, the last time we covered Japan back in January, it has become, at least in this century, a place where fashion, retail, and aesthetic trends kind of begin. And many retailers and brands look to Japan as early inspiration and guidance for upcoming product stories. And Kim and I talked about this before. Like, we've been hearing our whole careers, in-person retail is dead. No one wants to shop in a real store. Malls are dying. Then you go to Japan and you're like, uh, maybe we're just doing it wrong. Because in-person brick-and-mortar retail is the name of the game in Japan. People barely shop online. And as a result, the e-commerce experiences are not that great. <laughs> it's <laughs> true. Know? It is. Right? It's true. Right? Um, and so I always find going to Japan inspiring in like a million different ways, creatively, professionally, aesthetically, um, and also just like there's so much stunning nature and history and all kinds of stuff. But today we'll mostly be talking about style and aesthetic trends. I have to say... I have seen the future in the last week in Japan. Oh, my and, God. <laughs> uh, most of it was disturbing. Really? A lot yes. of it? Was it normcore? No. And just wait wow. until we get to jeans and hats because I, I have things wait. to tell you, okay? okay. But before okay. we jump into all that, okay. Kim, mm-hmm. you have to give us your regular spiel. Yes. Okay. Well, we got all... Follow, rate, and review on your preferred streaming service. All of those things at once, preferably. 
<laughs> if you can. You can also find us online at thedepartment.world for all the show notes. All these image references that Amanda's going to be talking about are going to be available there. And then you can also link to our Instagram so you can follow us. You know, um, if I do have, um, you know, capacity to, to post, I post on there. Um, and you'll be seeing a lot of um, additional additional things that kind of come through there. And I'm working on some reels for Close Horse that relate to some of the stuff I saw in Japan. I just like have not had time. Before we started recording, I was telling Kim like I... I had very little jet lag going this time, which is great, but I have been really struggling since we got back, like just so tired. And I have been going to bed at like 7.30 every night. Like it's still daylight it's here. Impressive. Mm-hmm. But working all day. So basically yeah. what I have done all week is wa- work and sleep. Yeah. I was actually, and, I was telling her that I was super surprised that she even had time to get this podcast done. So It was Bravo. actually, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Uh, it was a real <laughs> highlight working on this actually. And I was like, oh. It's such a good trip. Mm-hmm. Um, well, before we get into Japan, um, and I, I also know you all want to hear about my airline meals, and don't worry, I have <laughs> copious notes for you. I thought for a moment we could rewind to our festival fashion trend episode, which was our last episode, and just talk for a couple minutes about something that has been on my mind, and that is what Jeff Bezos <laughs> wore to Coachella. Now, oh. at the jump off, you hear Jeff Bezos and Coachella, and you think maybe Coachella is not that cool anymore. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I mean- <laughs> this this image, this image just makes me kind of puke in my mouth a little bit. So it's a little blurry and we're going to share it on Instagram. And it's because it's like a screenshot of a reel. But uh, first off, like, Kim, what are your thoughts on Jeff Bezos at Coachella? Uh, <laughs> I mean, he it's it's really hard to say. I mean, he's wearing a butterfly button down shirt. Um, mm-hmm. with some, like, ripped-up jeans. You know, it is a better look than the cowboy hat situation yes. that he was doing I when mean, he but went to space. It's all, like, relative, right? Because that yeah. doesn't mean that we think that this is a good look. And it's interesting to me because Jeff Bezos is a billionaire. Yeah. Do- why doesn't he have, like, a stylist or something? I mean, and then you know, it's actually really distracting because the woman that he's with is probably wearing something even more atrocious. Mm-hmm. And really, just it's just so distracting in this photo with it's like this kind of shiny um, mini skirt and the sneakers and this like kind of cr- it's it's bad. This, it, there's there's like plastic surgery face. It's a whole thing. It's all bad. And then they're with Chris Jenner. <laughs> yes, they are. I was like, is that Chris Jenner? <laughs> Who is, seems to be wearing like a Canadian tuxedo or something, but she sort it of cropped does out look here. Like that, yeah. So. People saw this shirt that Jeff Bezos is wearing in this whole outfit because he's got like a white T-shirt tucked in and it's like a slight V-neck. It's not cool. And then over it, this open butterfly print button up with the sleeves rolled up and then these strangely like sort of slim fit but not skinny jeans that are distressed and they're really strange watch wash and then like just total fucking dad sneakers yeah but like the, the jerry jeans are, seinfeld sneakers the jeans are tucked into the sneakers yeah it's so weird like he's afraid he, they're gonna be like snakes or something and he's like i gotta cover <laughs> everything right so i sometimes i hate the internet but most of the time i really love it because there are all these people out there who are willing to say i will not stop until i find the answer and people <laughs> wondered about this shirt because it's very distinctive um and people found it on amazon where it sells for 12 dollars. the brand is 
Boozhidao. It's B-U-Z-H-I-D-A-O. Oh. Uh, the description is Hawaiian shirt, men's short sleeve, summer shirt, men's shirt, casual shirt, mm-hmm. regular fit, men's basic shirts. The they're irony just, is that they're just stuffing it with it's a bunch a long of keywords. Shirt. It's, it's a long sleeve shirt. It's a button uh, up, yeah. And it's a button up, yeah. And uh, it comes in other colors, though, if you like. Uh, there's also one with just a dragonfly on it. Um, it's and, so ugly too because it it has all the detailing, not just the massive amount of butterflies, but it has that straight edged hem, and then these yeah. like these like solid cuffs, and oh. it just it it you know it really takes it from the divine to the, the garbage. I don't know. It's just the, really it really ruins it. Like the collar seems yeah. a little small. It's just cheap all the way. It's, it's like, really like, really bad. Every so. everything that you could kind of cut out to cheapen it, they've done. So do you think that Jeff picked this out on his own? That yes. You think so? So that raises my next question. Did we always suspect he was a butterfly guy? <laughs> and does that stem for an oh. admiration of 90s Drew Barrymore or is it a Mariah Carey thing? Yeah. I don't think it's either. I mean, it could be kind of stemming from his influence that his girlfriend has on him. So she's got terrible taste, too? Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, you see what she's wearing. (laughs) True, true. (laughs) Okay, and then lastly, is it good or bad that a billionaire is wearing a $12 shirt that is no doubt made with lots of exploitation and it's certainly heading to the landfill ASAP? But then on the other hand, it is from Amazon, which he did found. Is it good or bad? Bad. Like it's bad. bad. No, the whole thing's bad. The whole thing is bad. Um, we're going to share. Don't worry. We will at some point this week in stories share this shirt along with the Amazon listing for it because it is incredible. And I think that our our words will never do it justice. Yeah. You, you just that's, have to see it. That's right? It's a lot of butterflies. Now, if Neil came home and said, oh, hey, I'm waiting for a package from Amazon. And then it arrived, and he was like, oh, my God, wait until you see what I have in here. And he opened it, and it was the shirt. <laughs> How would you feel? <laughs> probably do something similar that my mother would do, which is accidentally throw it away. <laughs> classic. <laughs> classic. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay. Well, as we, you know, it's time to get into the main part of the episode. This is it. The meat and potatoes. The meat and potatoes. So I know that you all want to hear what I ate on my very long flights. Was it meat and potatoes? Oh, there were some weird potatoes. Okay, um, okay. There was some I, meat. I, yeah. won't, I won't interrupt. I won't interrupt. I received a lot of messages asking me. And I said, sorry, you'll have to wait until the episode comes out. I know this is really important, right? This is why you come to the department to hear what I ate on an airplane. Mm-hmm. What a lucky person I am. What a life well lived. So I'll start this by saying that I love travel, but I'm not exactly rich. So I'm always looking for a hot travel deal. And in most cases, I mean, I always find something cheap, but in most cases, it's not like grueling or terrible or a mistake. I do think that perhaps this time I went a little too frugal and Dustin and I suffered the repercussions. So (laughs) this time we drove to Houston, which is about two and a half hours from Austin to catch a flight. And that alone saved us $1,600, which is no joke. Like, that's a lot of money to save. So worth it. Would do that again. It was very easy drive. And then we just like rolled right in. Here's where it got weird. I bought us a ticket that went from Houston to Taipei and then from Taipei 
to Tokyo. Now, when you look at it on a map, you're like, it makes perfect sense. Taipei is on the way to Tokyo. Great. Except that that's not the way airplanes fly, right? We went over the top of the earth. So we went up the West Coast. We probably flew over LA. We definitely flew over Portland, over Alaska. And then we cut across, you know, like kind of the Arctic Circle and came back down. So we actually passed Tokyo four hours before we were landing in Taipei. Then we got off in Taipei and we got another plane and flew back another four hours to Tokyo. And that sucked. And I don't know what the longest flight you've ever been on has been, but that was a 16 hour flight just from Houston to Taipei, which is too much. Too much. Yeah. I can't explain it. Like you, you it's hit, usually you hit tw- your threshold. Yeah, it's like a twelve-hour flight from the United yeah. States to Tokyo, and it's it's not great. But you like get through it. But there was something about that extra four hours that I just was like, I can't anymore. Um, so it's a really really long trip, and I wouldn't do that again. I'd pay a couple of extra hundred dollars to not have to go all the way to Taipei and back. Um, we flew this airline called Eva Airlines. It's Taiwan-based, and I know them best as the airline that has the Hello Kitty flights. Now, I would do that, but yes. you have to fly out of L.A. to get that, so that would be like a whole other trip. Um, one more reason to move back to L.A., really, when you think exactly, about it. Exactly, exactly. Um, just one you take, for that flight. Just for that one, right? And you take that one from L.A. to Taipei and then on to Tokyo. It would be worth it. Um, anyway, so... The food was a little different than our last trip when we flew United, and we all know that that food was like a nightmare. <laughs> um, but it was still a little weird. Um, and as always, I had the gluten-free meal, and I think I might stop doing that because Dustin always gets the Hindu vegetarian, and it's just basically like a lot of curry and lentils, and it always looks infinitely better than what I get. So meal number one on our 16-hour flight. <laughs> the main dish was an airplane classic, a gluten-free meal classic, Chicken with vegetables and rice, something loosely tomato saucy on top of it. I didn't really eat it. The chicken was very dry. The side dish was more chicken (laughs) with a piece of lettuce and a tomato. (laughs) What? I know. It was like double chicken. Then there was also a jello dessert and three slices of fruit. I ate the fruit and the jello. Meal two on this flight salmon with vegetables and rice with that same ambiguous tomato-y-esque sauce at this point i was really nauseous and i also feel weird eating fish on an airplane i just can't explain it but it's like not where i am right so i did not eat that well because it's usually microwaved or something yeah it was weird and the side dish was chicken with a piece of broccoli Um, three slices of fruit and a jello dessert again, <laughs> ate the fruit and the jello dessert. Now, at some point during the night, someone, I am assuming a flight attendant, not some sort of prankster, put a sandwich on my tray table. It was a chicken sandwich. It was chicken, the same chicken that was in the other meals, <laughs> on a one with a piece of lettuce on gluten-free bread, no condiments. I ate the bread. <laughs> I was like, I can't, I cannot with this chicken anymore. Um, there was a breakfast on the second flight. Um, and it was one of those situations where I peeled back the foil and I was like, yeah, nope, this is not happening. It was a piece of fish with scrambled eggs. Um, just saying that out loud makes oh. me feel sick. Um, I did eat the three slices of fruit that also came with this. And there was a piece of gluten-free bread. I mean, I mean this actually, this sounds like a detox diet. It does, but on an airplane, right? <laughs> So, meal number one on the return flight was salmon with vegetables and rice again with ambiguous tomato sauce. Did not eat that. The same slices of fruit, which were always one apple, one apple slice, and two slices of orange every single time. 
ate that, ate the weird jello. Um, the side dish for this one, you probably thought I was going to say chicken, but the label said boiled fish. And as far as I can tell, oh. it was a boiled piece of white fish with a slice of red pepper, <laughs> uh, bell pepper. Okay, so skip to that. Meal number two was slightly better, possibly because at this point it was delirious with hunger. It was egg whites with sautéed greens. Not better. amazing. No flavor, but I ate it. Yeah. The side dish, however, and this meal that I think was supposed to be breakfast was boiled chicken. And I know it was boiled <laughs> because it said so with a piece of broccoli, three wow. slices of fruit, and like jello again. <laughs> How unappetizing is this entire situation? I know, I know. And it felt like hospital food, right? Yeah. Meanwhile, Dustin's getting all these like curries and there was a breakfast burrito and like <laughs> lentil salad. And I'm over here like... With boiled I, meats? I'm, I'll just have a side of boiled fish, thank you. I'll eat the piece of broccoli. It was very strange. Strange. It was very strange. Um, so yeah, that was the meal. Uh, I, you know, I think it was thoughtful of them. <laughs> it was better than the pale hot dog, right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to top that. Um, but I it don't was... know. Boiled fish it sounds. Yeah, I know. I think I almost think I'd rather have the boiled hot or the the, the pale hot dog than the boiled fish. The other thing about this airline, and I don't want to speak ill of a whole airline based on one trip, but they were really stingy about giving out water, and they would only come around like every four hours and give you half a cup, and it was just like usually on on long haul flights like that, you can get up and go back to like one of the service areas, and there'll be water out, and there wasn't, um, which sucked. But they were like so adamant that you eat that fucking meal they would like wake you up and be like here's your fucking boiled fish <laughs> you know it's disgusting and then shame you when you didn't eat it oh, and really? I was like you, Amanda never again never, never go on this flight again she was like the flight attendant was like oh you're not gonna eat this and I was like I'm kinda sick like, oh. sorry. Uh, there's like too much fish and too much chicken, and it was really, really weird. It does to me while I was like living the high life next yeah, to me, right. and I wanted to be like, "Hey, could I like, have some of your food?" But then I felt like that was rude. So next time I'm going to do Hindu vegetarian. It looked pretty gluten free as long as you didn't eat the bread. I think it would be better than whatever I was dealing with there, which was like nauseating. Yeah, nasty. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I wish you know I talked about how on other flights sometimes they'll just substitute every bread thing with water, and I kind of wish that would have happened on this flight. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you needed the water. One of the meals on the flight out, it was the last one. It was the one that was like eggs with fish. That did come with a cup of water on it. And I was like, oh, thank God. I drank it and it tasted like chemicals. And for a moment, I thought they'd accidentally give me some sort of like cleaning product. But I drank it anyway. It was a very, very strange trip. Anyway, now that we've covered the hard hitting topics, let's get into the trends I saw in Japan this time. You know, it was cool to have me like been there in winter and now see the spring summer trends because there was there was a shift. I can't remember if I covered this the last time we talked about Japan trends, but it's important for understanding the way trends play out there and even how retailers target specific customers because one thing that Japanese retailers and brands have really dialed in is a very specific target customer and just always pandering to them and not getting caught up in that like oh i should try to capture more sales by selling more kinds of things they're very much like this is what we do and it's it works because i think i mean not only does it ensure that like their customer always knows what's to expect and it builds loyalty it often lets them work out of much smaller retail spaces 
because they're not trying to jam in like every possible thing that anyone could ever buy, right? They're like, this is what we do and this is it. And so you can have like an 800 square foot store that is like not crowded, not junky, and probably saves them a lot of money from a real estate perspective. So there are three major categories of customer aesthetic in Japan. The first one is like people who just want to blend in, right? Sort of wearing more like socially prescribed uniforms. Uh, not literally uniforms, although in some cases, like people, there's very strong expectation about the type of suits you should wear to work, right? Or for different job roles, that kind of thing. But just in general, people who are like, I want to look nice, I want to clean, respectful, put together, but I'm not out there trying to make a big fashion statement. These are often here in the United States because th that's an aesthetic of dressing here in the United States as well. Those are the people who say like, oh, I don't really care about style. I just want to like blend in. You know, I just want to be dressed. And you're like, yeah, but that is caring about style, right? You have a particular edit of what you're going to wear. So when anyone tries to tell me that they don't care about what they wear, I'm like, but but you do. Do you want to borrow something from my closet? <laughs> I bet you don't because you yeah. care about what you wear, right? So yeah. So this is this first one, which is very like, it's what we think of actually some of the most successfully exported Japanese brands here, at least that have been successful here in the United States, specifically cater to that aesthetic. So I'm talking like Uniqlo and Muji. Um, you also will see that in most of the department stores there at a variety of price points. United Arrows is like a more premium version of this aesthetic. And it's pretty, it's pretty classic. It's like what I think of as like classic contemporary Japanese style. And it's it also, like it kind of, it kind of speaks in like that, that language of, of a little bit of preppy. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like preppy, there's like a little nautical, like it like kind of brings in that 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 kind of J. Crew-esque vibe. Totally. Very classic, not really print driven unless it's like small print, ditzy, small, ditzy yeah. stripes, that kind of thing. Like a nice wide leg cropped pant is always a part of that. Really simple shapes that drape well. I didn't see a lot of newness in this area per se, which would make sense because it's all about just this like classic, clean, easy aesthetic. But I did see Citron. Oh, yeah. And other sort of dopamine colors making their way into some of the more fashion forward brands and boutiques that play in this space. And I took some pictures of some of this use of Citron that I saw. But I'll tell you, there was another color I was seeing a lot of that I, I swear I thought I took pictures of it. But then when I got home, I didn't. And it was this like bright coral. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, which makes sense to you. And these, the, this aesthetic is primarily for adults, right? Uh, professionals, parents, you know, this is like what most adults in Japan would be wearing, right? Professionals. And it's available at all price points, just like here. Like you could go to Kohl's and get some approximation of J. Crew style, or you could go to J. Crew, or you could go even more somewhere high end in the contemporary section at Nordstrom, right? Um, so I went to, for my trend watch here for style, I went to a lot of different malls and department stores. I love stores. the malls. I'm so me jealous. Me too. Me too. Uh, oh, those malls are so fun, even though I can't really fit into most of the clothes there. But Well, that's the other thing I don't think we called out in the last episode is that most Japanese clothes, especially in the younger market, are one size or mm -hmm. two sizes maybe. And they are on the smaller side compared to U.S. sizing. But also the proportions are different. It's just like a different body 
uh, shape. And also, like, I can't find shoes there because uh, my feet are too long but too narrow. And whereas Japanese feet are shorter and wider. And yeah, so, like, I've never successfully been able to get a pair of shoes there. Different fit models and different specs, of course, for the demographic. Totally, totally. Dustin's always trying to buy jeans there. And then they're, like, waiters on him. Um, yeah, know, so that makes sense. Same thing. So, yeah, I, I was seeing, like, some of the photos I took were, like, they were still part of the department stores that really were catering to this, like, clean, simple, professional sort of aesthetic. But they were getting a little edgy around the edges. Like, this one photo I took is, like, a neon nylon skirt with a T-shirt layered over it. But it's in, like, uh, Daimaru, which is, like, a very, like, nice, like, young professional kind of uh, department store. It's like not in Kyoto. So it's not even like it was in Tokyo. So we are seeing this like dopamine color dressing coming into these like otherwise classic silhouettes. So that's the so that's uh, aesthetic number one. The next one is this ultra feminine aesthetic, which is kind of an evergreen aesthetic in Japan, regardless, regardless of the larger trend cycle. And this specifically targets teenagers and young women in their 20s. Sure, you can wear these clothes when you're older, but people might look at you and not take you seriously. I mean, in Japan, here, dress however you want. This is how I dress in a lot of ways. Um, And this is kind of like always is another one where it kind of always looks the same, but there are tiny trend shifts there that you can see. There's a lot of neutral tones, unsaturated pastels. So not like Eastery or like what we think of when we see like Selkie and other like sort of super femme brands here in the United States right now. It's more like washed out pastels. Um, Lots of ruffles, dresses, ultra feminine handbags and shoes. And on the younger end, it can also include more Lolita style day dresses and accessories. Um, One thing I did differently preparing for this episode that I hope will drive you to check out our show notes is I actually linked to Instagram accounts of a lot of different retailers and brands that I think will help drive this stuff home to you. So some of the, the bigger brands here, I would say, are Liz Lisa. Uh, another one, this is Dustin's personal favorite. He takes a, takes a photo anytime he sees a sign for the store. It's called Titty & Co. Um, that's <laughs> T-I-T-T-Y, <laughs> uh, which sounds like it would be like a lingerie store, but is actually just like really feminine clothing. Another one called Bubbles, uh, Manon Tokyo, on Mile, and another, my personal favorite it looks like it's nice clop, like C-L-A-U-P, but I think it's supposed to be clap. Um, and they all really specialize in this highly feminine aesthetic. I visited several malls on this trip that focused on teenagers and young adults, and all of them had entire floors, like multiple floors of these types of stores. Because that's another thing about Japanese malls that are so smart is that, first off, rather than being expansive the way malls are here, they are tall. So they'll have 10 or 12 floors rather than like two or three. And they go up and you have, it's like they all are like a circular uh, floor plan. So you get off. The best thing you can do is go all the way to the top, get off and then go down the escalator. So you like walk around, see the whole floor, get on the next escalator, go down and do that in these like concentric rings until you get to the bottom. And most of them really, I mean, this is so smart, the floors are really laid out to cater to specific customers. So there will be several floors 
for example, in the Shibuya 109 mall that are just this like hyper feminine aesthetic, all small format stores that almost like run together and are barely separated. So you can almost have this expansive shopping experience that almost feels like a department store, but you pay at each of these little stores individually. Um, so and Amanda, you're making me want to go to Japan with you next time. I know, right? Oh, I just want to go back. That's so fun. I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna go in October. Okay. I have always wanted to go for Halloween. Oh, yeah. What's it? What's it like there during Halloween? Well, I don't know, but a few years ago we went to Japan the week before Halloween. And all of the restaurants were getting ready to have special Halloween menus. And there were costumes everywhere. And I did some reading. And apparently, like, everyone comes out. And it's really fun. And everyone wears costumes. And there's all kinds of cute food and candy. And all the all the menus are fall-focused. And I was like, okay, we're coming back for Halloween. And we had planned to come back for Halloween the next year. But then we ended up moving to Philadelphia. So we had to put it Gross. off. Then it was yeah. the pandemic. And I said, yeah. can this year please be the year that we go for Halloween and I won't make us fly through Taiwan this time? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, so this aesthetic is something that I have been, I mean, we've been going to Japan for like seven years now on a near, sometimes multiple times a year, um, except for the peak of the pandemic. And this is an aesthetic that to me is just like solid, evergreen, always there. You know, um, mm -hmm. it doesn't have exactly. a ton of trendiness associated with it. But at the same time, I think it's important to call out that Japan has not fallen into the fast fashion trap. Most stores, no matter how big, how young the customer may be, carry the same product through a season or longer. There isn't a constant flood of new arrivals every day or week like we see at fast fashion retailers here in the U.S., like if you I could have definitely gone to Japan in, say, last October, and I probably would have seen the same clothing in the store going back in January. Now, things were a little bit different because now we were in a different season. And should we go in October, we'll probably see different stuff then, too. But it won't feel like a great leap away from where it is right now. Um it's just really interesting to see that fashion is slower there, even when it's like such a big trend inspiration for the rest of the world. I think that's really fascinating. And as a result, the quality is better too. In case you were wondering, like, okay, who here in the United States is, you know, operating using the fast fashion model if a lot of these stores in Japan aren't? It's just about every big brand or retailer here in the United States that is currently operating using the fast fashion model, regardless of price point or aesthetic. So, you know, of course, you get Zara, Forever 21, H&M, Fashion Nova, Urban Outfitters, but you also get Anthropology, Free People, Madewell. They are delivering constant new product all the time. It goes on sale pretty fast. It moves out so the next stuff can come in. And these are these are brands that will like launch new product every day or every week. Gosh, I remember at Nasty Gal every Tuesday, new yep, arrivals, every Tuesday, right? Yeah. Yep. Many other places I've worked as well. When I worked at Mod Cloth, we launched new arrivals every day at noon. Every day. So this is not how J Japan works. It's like, if you don't like what like Titty & Co. has this season, <laughs> well, you're out of luck. You, yeah. <laughs> you got to wait. Um, so yeah, so despite being like a trend leader for the world, I think this is so fascinating 
Japan isn't cycling through trends in the same way. I did see a few newer things happening in this ultra-feminine aesthetic, but I also saw a lot of carryover from my last trip, like ballet and tulle skirts, really a lot of ballet aesthetic as a whole, oversized pussy bows on blouses, pearls, a hint of these sort of Bridgerton Marie Antoinette vibes, maybe with a dash of Anne, and Green, Anne of Green Gables yeah, from a print exactly. perspective. But I also saw some newness. And one of them, this is one of the bad things I saw, get ready for it. It's sort of encompassing all aesthetics in Japan, and I don't love it. It's the return of the newsboy hat. Oh, that's fascinating. I saw it in department stores. I saw it in like really hyper streetwear focused brands. And I saw it at Titty and Co. And other <laughs> feminines like retailers. Oh my God, the newsboy hat. Back, back in a big way. Yeah, usually solid, but I guarantee in fall, we're going to start seeing it in plaids and wools, that kind of thing. Now, I this really took me back because way back when I started my career and was a buyer for Urban Outfitters, we were still selling these like gangbusters. It was just like constantly on reorder, had been for like five, six, seven, eight years. Um, they were they were waning, but they were still people still came in and bought them. And I remember they were all that brand Gorin Brothers. Oh yeah, of course. So Gorin Brothers, if you're listening, you might want to get ready. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, have you ever worn one of these? No. Yeah, me neither. It's not Mm-mm. for me. It's not for me. I'm I'm also just not a hat person as much. Right. I mean, I like I love the idea of a hat. It's I think we've talked about this before. They're too fussy for me. Yeah, yeah. Not even a newsboy. You know, for no. delivering newspapers or whatever. <laughs> Maybe. maybe. Watching newsies. <laughs> um, the other thing, which I actually have fallen prey to on this trip, is the tiny purse. The Ooh, tiny purse tiny. is huge. Like, so tiny, there's just enough space for oh, a phone and a wallet, cute. often with a long metal chain to be worn crossbody. There's no clutches in Japan. Get your clutch out of here. And there are no, to quote succession, there are no ludicrously capacious bags either. So just these little guys. And I actually bought a really cute one. I, you know, I have to hem and haul a million years before I buy anything. But I actually saw this bag in the basement of La Forette. It was from like an artist. And I just immediately took it to the cash register. I was like, (gasps) I need this. And it's like a weird stuffed animal attached to a pouch (laughs) on a gold chain. It's very, very cool. And each one is individually made, even the stuffed animal by an artist. It's really cool. Um, and I actually have been loving it and wearing it every day, even at work, just with my phone in it. Just I to, like, need to have see it. it. I, I, will, need a, I need I'll, a photo. I'll send you a photo. Because, like, I exclusively wear dresses and 99% of them don't have pockets. This is the pocket I never had. I'm obsessed. Yeah, I'm obsessed. It's right there. Awesome. So I'm seeing a lot of those. Another trend that I saw playing out in a big way within this ultra-feminine aesthetic was black and white. Usually neutral and washed out pastels, as I mentioned, are the name of the game here. But I saw a lot of black and white prints and just full on black and white outfits. And I thought that that was like almost kind of (laughs) edgy. Yeah, it's really edgy, but also conservative. Yeah, yeah. And some of this, I, you know, we have tons of photos we're going to share. Some of them are photos I took like in stores. Some are some I took from different brands, Instagrams and websites. Some of it has a little bit of plaza core to it, I think. Mm -hmm. It certainly does. Uh, But other is just like so feminine. I see a lot of these newsboy hats. And and told you. You were saying that the recession is also affecting Japan. Mm. 
And you notice a lot of long skirts here, right? A lot of long skirts, but also I think the the, the color, like when the colors start getting a little bit yeah. drabber, it might be, you know, might, might be an indicator. I mean, I will tell you that nine times out of 10, when I saw someone wearing a skirt on this trip, it was a maxi skirt. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And it was warm. It's not like it was like, oh, it's a winter thing. Like it was warm and humid there. Um, yeah, and I, I, I don't know. I thought this was like so fresh because these are the same silhouettes I saw on the last trip, uh, just sort of recolored. And then, of course, these newsboy hats added. But you can even see like some tiny purses in these photos. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, okay, so that's the hy- hyper feminine aesthetic. So the third customer aesthetic, and I think this is the one that when you talk about Japan style, this is the one that people think of most. And it's the sort of trendiest... It targets the youngest customers. It's often a bit sexier, yet unisex. It's more streetwear, music-influenced. And it's definitely what the Urban Outfitters buyers are scoping out in their trend trips. It's kind of like where we see the wildest stuff. So the last time when I was talking about like boomer core and skater aesthetic, like that's where that was coming from, right? There's a lot to unpack in this one. There are good things that I loved. There are things that are somewhat bad, like maybe a newsboy cap. And then <laughs> there was some stuff I saw that I was like, I wish I could wash my eyes. I hate this so much. Just high levels of ugly I can't get with. But I appreciate. <laughs> Do you think that the um, the newsboy cap is going to slowly start replacing the, uh, oh, what's the one that everyone wears now? The, the squishy one. Uh, the raver hat. The bucket hat? The bucket hat, yeah. I think, yes. Still saw a lot of bucket hats, but more newsboy caps. You know what? This was what was interesting. I saw newsboy caps in places I hadn't seen hats before. And then I also saw newsboy caps moving into places where the bucket hats were. But one of the trends I'm going to talk about that I saw in this like more like youth-focused aesthetic kind of still needs the the bucket hat to make sense right now so when the next step beyond it maybe newsboys will swoop in there as well so there are a lot of brands in this category and there i mean the list could go on and on but some of my favorites are punyus that's p-u-n-y-u-s that store actually carries larger sizes that fit westerners and if they have plus size clothes as well which is very rare in japan and very trend forward uh Wago, which is a classic. A lot of Wagos have actually shifted a big chunk of their sales floor now to be secondhand clothing, which is pretty, pretty big. Uh, Spins. Spins is another one that has sort of a shrinking footprint of new stuff and primarily secondhand and upcycled. Um, One that is just like the most cuckoo bananas, like goth, sexy, (laughs) dolls kill on on drugs, believe it, I don't even know what that would be. It's pretty scary. Uh, it's called Vulcan and Aphrodite. It's probably the wildest clothing that you see there. Um, there are tons of other brands, but these are some of my favorite ones. And once again, we're going to have links to all of their Instagrams so you can go check them out. So I know. I'm actually looking at them right now, and they're amazing. Amazing, right? So uh-huh. um, the overarching trend that I'm going to call out that they were all leaning into I mean, they still have skater stuff. There's still remnants of boomer core in there, especially on the secondhand side of the businesses. Saw so many kitten sweatshirts that are from <laughs> North America, like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think I said this last time. I'm just going to say it again. A vast majority, and I'm talking like 99% of the secondhand that you see 
in Japan is from North America. It's from the U.S. and Canada. There's a little bit, sometimes you'll see some European stuff, but it is primarily from the U.S. and Canada. Um, so I don't really buy secondhand clothes in Japan because I'm sort of like, ah, I could get this stuff at home. <laughs> you know, unless I see something really incredible. Dustin has found some good Western shirts there where he was like, I have to jump on this. But in general, like, it's the same stuff we see thrifting here. So it feels weird to buy it there and then fly it home, you know? Yeah. And it will often be more expensive because it's already been, you know, flown there. Um, okay, so the my, the overarching trend that I'm calling out here, and I'm calling it pre-millennium tension. Ooh. So I saw some bits of Y2K here and there, which we know is like massively trending here in the US. You know, light denim washes, bedazzled tees. I saw some of that. I actually saw the trend clock reversing itself a few years to the late 90s and its futuristic aesthetic. Do you remember, Kim, when Electronica was the biggest music trend? It was like going to save course. MTV, right? Yes. Yeah. Remember Trip Hop? Like, this is that era. Yes. In fact, I'm naming, <laughs> wow. this, I'm naming this trend after Tricky's iconic <gasps> 1996 oh album, Premillennium Tension, which I listened to this week. It holds up. And it really captures the darkness and anxiety of the last few years of the 20th century. Oh my gosh, what an amazing find, Amanda. Thank you. So then I was like, okay, <laughs> was pre-millennium tension a thing? Because like at the time that album came out and we were wearing futuristic clothes, I knew, I mean, we've talked about this before. I knew there was anxiety about there out there about Y2K, the Y2K bug, not Y2K fashion, but the Y2K bug. It didn't really affect our lives, right? We were like too young. We weren't like, oh, we're going to lose our life savings when the clock rolls over at midnight, right? Um, but I did rem- kind of have this hazy memory of reading here and there that people felt that there was this decline in civilization that related to the dawn of a new millennium. And so I wondered, like, where had Tricky gotten that title pre-millennium tension from? And I actually found out that it was a media trend in the late 1990s. Basically, like, writing about pre-millennium tension and how it was, like, affecting the world in a bad way was a trend. And we see this happen all the time, right? Like, there's always, like, weird trend cycles, just even for media, where people are writing the same thing over and over again in different ways. Um, I actually found, this is a deep cut, I found a 1998 Washington Post rant, which we'll link to, it's very short, actually. (laughs) I think it's from the editorial page. It's unclear, because this is, like, a pre-internet era Washington Post that's just been, like, art you know, in the archives. And it expressed frustration with the popularity of that term, premillennium tension. I'm going to read you a little paragraph from it that made me laugh. It's anxiety about the year 2000, depression due to the breakdown of community, a loss of faith, a creepy sense of unease, irrational rage or exuberance, visions of an apocalyptic future, interest in the paranormal. You get the idea. Mostly, it's lazy journalistic shorthand. The term has been used to rationalize or explain the Waco bloodbath, the Heaven's Gate suicides, the Oklahoma City bombing, El Nino, the Hong Kong handover, Australia's reevaluation of its links to the monarchy, rioting Barry Manilow fans, pretty young (laughs) girls dressed like tramps, the increase in specificity in direct mail solicitations, and recent sightings of fairies, pixies, elves, and sprites 
when the 14 times a British journal of strange phenomena declared that the world was 2.9% weirder <laughs> in 1996 than wow. in 1995, it cited pre-millennium tension. Writers have used the term to describe disaster flicks, the X-Files, Angels in America, Don DeLillo's Underworld, the fashion designs of Paco Rabanne, and the music of Bjork, Bob Dylan, Radiohead, U2, Pulp, Goody Mob, and of course, Tricky, whose 1996 album was simply called Pre-Millennium Attention. So basically, writing about and blaming things on the dawn of the new millennium was the millennials are killing blank of the mm-hmm. late 90s. Um, and I, you know, I kind of like came at this backwards where I was like looking at the clothes and aesthetic I was seeing, even just like the kind of music that I was hearing in the stores that were selling this stuff. And I was like, wow, like this this is creating a mood for me that actually reminds me of this era in my life. And it specifically reminds me of the way that Tricky album sounded. So I was like, I think that's what I'm going to call this trend. And then when I did more research into it, I was like, yes, this is like the name I'm clinging to here. So regardless of the weird, whatever was causing the weird list of the late 1990s, and by the way, anyone who thought the 90s were weird clearly had not seen the no, 2020s exactly. yet. I know, I'm like, y'all no are a bunch of babies. <laughs> exactly. Right? There was, no matter what was going on in the world, there was a very clear pre-millennium style trend. It only lasted a couple years, and it was based on futurism, cyberpunk, rave culture, electronic music, and, and a bit of utility, actually. So it's like hackers. Yes, yes. And it was like a short-lived window, mm-hmm. right? So I was thinking about this a lot because I definitely was very into this in like 1999, 2000, maybe a tiny bit of 2001, but I was already starting to move away from it because I was getting really into Belle and Sebastian, very different aesthetic. But uh, I remember specifically there was this store that I like to go to in Chicago. And I seriously, if someone who's listening to this remembers the name of the store and messages me, I will send you a bunch of like clothes horse pins and other stuff and some candy because I have been deep digging into the internet for days trying to f- remember the name of the store and I can't but it was on like sort of like the uh, Clark Street south of diversity in Chicago and they sold all of the, like the big brands of this time like the indie brands like UFO and Genco and Fresh Jive and all of them were like ravery aesthetic right like lots of parachute pants and wide leg pants and you know like the look bucket hats you name it um they definitely had rocket dog shoes um i cannot for the life of me remember it but i remember i would walk down clark street it was diagonal from urban outfitters can't find it on the map it looks like that building was demolished i have no idea what it was called anyway there was like definitely like there were many key materials silhouettes and just like attributes of that aesthetic and i think this is going to really take you back kim i don't know if you were into any of this but first one of course cargo maxi dresses and skirts yes of course and cargo pants uh dresses skirts and pants that were in like nylon or tech techie fabrics that were very similar to nylon maybe sometimes reflective 
lots of superfluous drawstrings. It's like very dystopian. Very dystopian. Mm-hmm. Like drawstrings that would ostensibly like allow you to convert this garment into something yes, else. And sometimes exactly. did successfully and sometimes didn't. <laughs> Chunky, round shoes. We talk about Rocket Dog all the time here. Dustin and I were on the flight back and we were like, Rocket Dog, get it together. Bring back your 1999 shoes because we saw a lot of it in Japan this time that wasn't Rocket Dog brand, but may as well have been. Uh, bucket hats are a part of this trend, which makes sense. Like if you think back to that time, ball chain jewelry, nylon webbing, like as for purse straps, belts, other details on garments, mesh and fishnet, but like wide gauge fishnet. Uh, often, like you would see this even in like, I don't know, like, alloy catalogs and whatnot the top layer of this outfit (laughs) would be an unbuttoned solid button-up shirt that was that boxy bowling shirt shape right so like short and wide 3d bubble or popcorn fabric zippers with o-rings for no particular reason right it was about like this idea of utility, and I think it was, it was very dystopian. And then there was a little bit of tracksuits in here, but of course tracksuits would actually become even bigger as we got into real Y2K, but it was like starting to happen. I saw so much of this in Japan. Like I saw things I had not seen, Kim, since the late 90s, like right in front of my eyes. It was wild, including the bubble fabric, which really took me back. I think some people call it popcorn fabric. Yes. I'm not sad about it. It's actually really striking. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw it in skirts, tops, purses, um, lots of cargo maxi skirts and pants, those rocket dog-esque shoes, tech fabrics. I mean, this is just like, ah. I can't even. It was so cool. That's really exciting because I do remember this and this was a really awesome time. And it was short. It was so uh-huh. short, right? Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I am very excited to see this. I really hope that more brands jump on this. Uh, it felt, even though it was familiar to me, it also felt so fresh. Every skirt, you know, cargo pockets, mm-hmm. drawstrings that allow you to adjust the length or make it high-low. Same thing with pants. A lot of pull-on pants that do I'm that. really into these green pants that you're showing. Oh, I know. With the silver shoes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Tiny purses. I don't know if you're seeing the tiny purses in a lot of these. So cute. Um, Just, yeah, amazing. So good. Seeing the bucket hats. Um, There's even, I included this pair of, like, cargo flare jeans. Which sounds yes. like a nightmare, <laughs> but I was like, oh my God, I had these jeans, but they were a different brand. They were like LEI or something like yeah. that, or Mavi or something. Mine had yellow stitching, but this was the exact silhouette with the cargo pockets. Um, just like even a little bit, pulling in a little bit of that ballerina style, but then adding the tech appeal to it. I did show one male mannequin in here. His pants have all these random drawstrings on them. Sweet looking. Sweet looking, right? I specifically remember Dylan's father having, like, these pants. They were from Urban Outfitters. Like, just so crazy just to see see this stuff. Um, yeah, loving this. It feels so fresh. What I wouldn't give to go into the Urban Outfitters, like, design archives back to the, the, oh. the late mid-90s and see what they had Because that going. was to me. And I say this as a person who worked for Urban Outfitters for 10 years. There were some really big business years for them. The 90s was the really sweet time. That's when Urban Outfitters was like really cool. I worked 
one year in college, my freshman year of college, I worked at the Urban Outfitters on 6th Avenue in New York City. It's not there anymore. And I still think about how cool some of the shit was we sold then. And we broke a lot of brands that came to be like shorthand for like the coolest 90s stuff like Urban Decay. Mm-hmm. You know, hard exactly. candy, no I remember color. That. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And we had just all of our clothes were so cool, low quality, but really, really cool. Um, so, yeah, that is uh, pre millennium tension. That is the good trend. Uh, now, let's talk about the extra ugly, which I'm calling crimes against denim. Uh, <laughs> we're talking extreme cutouts and garter style jeans. Oh, no. Uh, they don't even make any sense. Although Dustin was like, I've seen these before somewhere where basically it's like, I don't know, they're almost they're almost chaps, but they're almost like garter. I don't know. It's like the top half of the pants are disconnected from the bottom half and then they're connected by chains or straps. Yes. Okay. Right. Awful. Yes. Um, oh my god, I'm looking at these photos. Really, oh. really heavy distressing. Uh, the return of the denim maxi skirt that's kind of pieced together or heavily distressed. Um, a lot of jeans that, like, I wish someone would explain this to me. Uh, you can see it in the first photo I have, Kim, where they just slice the side and then that's it. Yeah. At, like, right at the right at the part of your thigh that you don't want anyone to see. <laughs> it's so fascinating, right? Lots of that. Saw that in a few stores also just, like, as, like, trousers, like, more, like, work pantsy, but then sliced there as well. Um, there's this one brand called Expo that was really going hard on Crimes Against Denim. Um, I, there's this other outfit. I can't wait for you all to see these photos where I'm really confused because the top is very, like, preppy, like, rugby kind of top. And then these, like, wild jeans where it's the shorts connected to the rest of the pant by chains but then also there by are like, these big pockets the, but they're like they're like outside pockets inside pockets on the outside and these are connected by what looks like like you said like garters it's or like so suspe- bizarre suspenders yeah. and then there's this other pair that i'm showing i showed the back view this is a screenshot of it, like a video a reel where only the back is just completely cut off and the person's wearing like pumps. Um, there's just like a lot of weird denim here. And I just, I, after a point, I was like, I have to stop looking because it's hurting my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> but like, kind of the, I mean, you, denim is always a part of Japanese style and it tends to really focus on more like heritage brands denim or like maybe whatever is hyper trendy at that point, especially in with, the boomer core where it's like that dad jean, the ultra light wash. But this time we saw it take a really wild turn, right? It's like so novelty. So novelty. Even like pull on jeans with like big drawstrings that are kind of like kind of a balloon shape that were fitting into that pre-millennium tension aesthetic. It, it kind of feels like fast fashion too. I think maybe that's why you're so like dis- <laughs> depressed yeah. by it because you're like, People will not be wearing this for a very long time. I mean, yeah, right? It's really interesting. If you're having a hard time even imagining what we're saying, because it defines defies all logic, don't worry. Like I said, we're going to share photos. Yeah, we'll share them. And I saw, like, this wasn't just something I saw in Tokyo. It wasn't something I just saw in a few stores. I saw it a lot. Now, did I see anybody wearing it? That's the interesting part. No. Interesting. Like, where are they wearing this? Are these, like, going out pants? I, are they going to the right? club? I don't know, because, like, didn't see it walking around Harajuku, 
right? Right. They didn't see it walking around Shibuya. And I saw a lot of this other stuff like playing out in front of me. So that was interesting to me. That is interesting. So many mannequins and so many stores with this. And then going on to the Instagrams of some of these brands, because going on to their website is a waste of time. Like if you really want to see what they have, you have to go on Instagram because they don't rely on selling via e-commerce. Um, and seeing like so many videos and photos and just being like, wait, well, where were these people when I was there? Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Very, very interesting. Would you wear any of these? Uh, let me look at them. Um, probably not. <laughs> I mean, m- most likely because I just kind of still wear like knit pants because they're comfy <laughs> and I and I work from home. So it's like, why would I put on these like garter belt jeans? Can you to imagine? Sit on the and then couch? Neil, Neil's wearing his new butterfly <laughs> button up and you <laughs> you guys go out for, to oh. a wine bar. <laughs> I think we get arrested. The fashion police would come by. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> okay, so that is style trends, and then I just want to talk about some a couple other trend callouts because I know you know we're already like an hour into this. I don't want to bore you all. You know, first off, like I said, secondhand is still going super strong there. More stores are adding secondhand sections, full-on secondhand stores in the mall. Um, in the last episode about Japan, we talked about La Forêt, which is the very cool probably most fashion forward mall you could ever go to and it's in harajuku um it's another one of those that's like 10 12 stories and you just walk down uh there were a lot of secondhand shops in la forette now and the last time we were there it seemed like there was a lot of empty space in la forette but it's really filled in which was very gratifying because we still saw a lot of empty real estate in harajuku specifically on like the key streets there like Takashida and Cat Street, just many empty retail spaces. It felt really weird, actually, uh, and not as busy as it's been in the past. In fact, on Takashida Street, there are even more vacancies, and it seems like they're tearing a bunch of buildings down, mm. which will really change the face of what people think of as Harajuku. Uh, we went out to, so the last time we were there, I was saying, you know, and I told you this, like Harajuku had changed. There were a lot of big Western brands there. A lot of the smaller businesses were gone. Oh, my God. Like, on a key intersection right there in Harajuku, like, right by the station, uh, there used to be a bunch of different stores. And now one of them has been taken over just by Uber Eats. And we were like, wow. Wow. Well, that, like, just tells you something, right? That used to be a really cool vintage store. And now it's Uber Eats. I don't even know what was going on in there, right? Um, Speaking of crimes against fashion. So, so yeah, so like, you know, Harajuku has changed. And the last time we were in Tokyo, you know, on the previous trip, Dustin and I were like, where do we think it is? And I, where do people go? Where's the cool neighborhood now? And I said, I think it might be Shimo Kitazawa, which we had gone there a few trips ago, but we didn't go on the last one because we just didn't have time. Um, So we took a trip out there this time. It's actually, I would say if by train, it's like, 15, 20 minutes from Harajuku, but it's it's like more west in Tokyo. Um, and yeah, we were right. Just like a zillion secondhand stores. Uh, many people refer to Shimo Kitazawa as the Bohemian district of Tokyo. Ooh. I don't know about that. It's definitely getting fancy and gentrified, but I didn't see any Western brands there, unlike Harajuku. And there were a lot of restaurants there that seemed really good and it was like really lively and fun. Um, like I said, I don't really buy secondhand clothing in japan because like just get it here it's the same stuff but i mean go in strong and just so many people there and like really interest more interesting style just i think that neighborhood is continuing to evolve 
Um, and actually, we've decided on our next trip, we're going to spend most of it in Tokyo so we can explore more neighborhoods because this time we were all over. We went all the way down to Naoshima, which is an island in the Sado Inland Sea, which is like a, it's like a contemporary art destination, but it's also a really small town. Uh, there's one 7-Eleven on the whole island, and all the restaurants were closed most of the time while we were there. So we ate a lot of 7-Eleven food. And we <laughs> which rode, isn't that bad. Not that, no, yeah, it's like fine. We rode a lot of bikes around. It was really, really fun. We were there for several days, but like, you know, it's not this, it's not the same as being in Tokyo, right? Um, just like a different kind of trip. But we we're like, okay, next time we're going to go to Kyoto for a few days like we always do. And then we're going to spend the rest of it in Tokyo. Um, anyway, so we're going to explore Shimo Kitazawa more when we go back. Uh, there's also, this is a place we, a neighborhood that we try to go to on most trips because Dustin's favorite coffee in the whole world is there it's a place called bear pond and i was going to link to the instagram for them but they're the kind of place that's too cool to have a real instagram so they just have one post Mm -hmm. um but it's not even it's not worth it you can't take pictures in there um and the coffee is really exceptional um i also am gonna say that despite this huge shift in what harajuku is uh, I think that we're starting to see the return. We're in the very early stages of it, of that fruits era, just maximalist Ooh. aesthetic. I think it's coming back. It's slowly starting to happen. I saw a it's lot like of the new generation. Totally. I saw a lot of copies of old issues of fruits at secondhand stores. I saw that those huge, like massively long socks that you scrunch up and wear, they were like in key part of all fruits outfits uh, i started to see them in stores again i see a lot of upcycled statement jewelry plush as fashion accessories as you know i bought one uh crochet bright colors I, especially in law for it where we come to see you know the most fashion forward aesthetic developing that's what was happening in there and the second hand shops themselves within there were really focusing on this like very eclectic aesthetic um i'm ex- really excited to see how that develops because uh, i think it's going to be i'm excited you know i'm just excited for it yeah um, me too yeah we're, we're ready for it we were in the bottom floor of La Forette, which is where I bought that purse and I bought some earrings for Dylan. And I was just like looking at everything. There was so much cute stuff. Um, and there was a group of young people who were so fruits, but I didn't want to take a picture of them and embarrass them. And they were sitting on the floor there playing music with a ukulele and bongos. Oh my <laughs> it was gosh, amazing. I, love it. I felt like I returned to pre-pandemic Japan. So I, I really loved that. Um, you know, the last time I went to Japan, I talked about a lot about Adario, Adaria Retro Glass, which then like a week later we saw for sale on Bandeau, remember? Yes, and I was exactly. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There it is. Right? Well, I'm still seeing that print direction, that brand, that aesthetic being applied to stationery and tchotchkes all over the place. I'm actually predicting the next time I go, there's going to be like an Adaria cafe and I will totally go there. Um, it's really like, in addition to like, it being exciting from an aesthetic perspective and people obviously like really buying into it. I also think that it is renewing interest in the like mid-century cafe, um, which was just like a mainstay of Japan during that time period. And it's really known for like certain menu items like the melon ice cream soda, which I finally had one on this trip. It's like the iconic green soda with one scoop of vanilla ice cream and one scoop of strawberry sorbet. 
so good. It's like beyond. It's so good. Um, and like the retro puddings, we also tried one of those. Um, and just like that kind of experience, I think it's like picking up steam after years of sort of like novelty character cafes being the thing. I think now it's like, no, now we want to go to these authentic retro experiences. Uh, I also found that retro food packaging is a big design inspiration in Japan right now. And I think it's like, it's on the early part of the trend cycle. So I'll probably see this expand more, but I was seeing it in stationary shops. I even saw it in Tokyo Hands. <gasps> oh, you got to uh, go to Tokyo Hands. Oh, I went to Tokyo Hands in Tokyo and also in Kyoto to like, compare the assortment. Um, <laughs> and I will say that like this makes sense to me because if we're talking about pre-millennium aesthetic making a comeback, in the mid to late 90s, repurposing vintage logos, especially for food items or just like other well-known brands, was a big part of the alternative fashion and design aesthetic, right? And so I think that that's probably where we're going to see this go. Right now, we were just seeing stickers, stationery, accessories that took this like retro food packaging aesthetic like one of the pictures I took, and some of these are a little weird because I'm trying to covertly take pictures in stores because uh, I feel weird about it, were all of these just like exact replicas of mid-century food packages that were actually gift boxes that you could buy to put yeah, gifts in. so cute. So cute, right? Beyond that, it's just really important to remember that that Showa era, which is that like late 50s to 70s, is also when kawaii arrived on the scene. It was a huge social, cultural, aesthetic product trend that like has not died, right? And really ultimately began to kind of consume so many different aspects of Japanese day-to-day -day life, even the kind of signage you see on the subway. You know, and it began in the 1950s in a lot of these like girls magazines. And it was really pioneered by a small group of artists. We went to an amazing exhibit in Kobe. Um, it was the day we took the train from Tokyo to Kyoto. So it was like we hadn't even been in the country for 24 hours yet. We pulled into Kyoto and it was just raining buckets. And my whole plan for that day had been to like walk around, right? So I said, you know, on the way down, I had seen these stickers in Tokyo hands and I looked up the artist because I was like, I think I know this artist from other reading I've done. It was, it's this guy, uh, Rune Naito. And I said, you know, he's, there's like a show going on in Kobe for him right now. Should, should we go? Uh, is that crazy? Oh my gosh, that's awesome. So Dustin said, yeah, let's just go. So we went into the, we got off the Shinkansen in Kyoto, put all our stuff in storage and lockers, and then went and got the first train ticket to Kobe. So we got back on the Shinkansen. It was like a 20 minute trip. But then we had to take two more smaller trips because this museum is part of like the, it's like the uh, Kobe Fashion Museum. It's part of a fashion school that's on an island. <laughs> Of course oh, wow. it is, right? So we had to take all yeah. these trains. And we got there and it was this whole like retrospective for Rune Naido, who, you know, he's like kind of considered like, I don't know, like the grandfather, the godfather, the uncle, whatever you want to call him, of the kawaii aesthetic, particularly inventing that idea of big eyed girls. Uh, he did and he did that via all his drawings for girls magazines of the late 50s and early 60s. I was starting to see his work popping up in gift shops, even on the previous trip. 
And I can see this picking up a lot of momentum as we get into the fall winter. So I shared some like stickers and stuff and some of his other work, which we'll share in the show notes. And I actually made a reel while I was there of what we saw at the exhibit. But it was, and it was all amazing. But then we, as we came back in from Kobe, you know, went shopping in Kyoto and then later in Tokyo, I was seeing this stuff popping up everywhere. And I think we're going to see it grow just as we've seen the Adaria retro glass prints grow. Oh, so awesome. I'm keeping my eye out for that. Do they have a gift shop there? At the, at they the... did, yeah. Um, and it was like pretty good. Um, I bought a little compact for Dylan and I bought some of these stickers um, and I bought a book actually of a lot of his like commercial designs because I thought it was really interesting, like the products and stuff that came from him because he... He did dolls and salt and pepper shakers and dishes and like ceramics and all of these like decal stickers and stuff. It was really, really cool. He also in the late 70s was doing illustration illustrations for gay men's magazines, which I did not include those photos here, but they were really cool that there was one really disturbing of a man dressed as a sailor and he was naked except for a sailor hat. That's how he was dressed as a sailor. And he had an octopus <laughs> wrapped around him and then like, you know, performing oral oh. sex on him. Um, it was, oh. but it was like really well done. <laughs> <laughs> and there was some of that there too, but it was like, what a great like surprise trip for us to take. That's awesome. It was really awesome. Um, oh God. Super inspiring. And yeah, that was our trip to Japan. Man, I really want to go with you next time. Maybe we should do it. Yeah. Yeah. Here's here's the itinerary that I'm already working out. Okay. 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 We'll get in on Saturday. We'll spend the night in a hotel at the train at Tokyo Station, which is what we did this time. We actually I splurged. We stayed in this hotel that is owned by JR, the railroad company. And so it's over the the tracks of the station, which was really cool. But it was quiet, right? But you could just see the trains coming in and out. It was awesome. Um then we'll get up early in the morning and we'll take the Shinkansen to Kyoto and we'll stay there for two days because um, there's a lot of great shopping, art. We went to the botanical gardens there. They were so cool. Um, so much good food there. And it's just like, you know, it's the old city. That's what Kyoto means, the old city. And so it's like the most. Have you been there before? Not to Kyoto. It's the most like historical i would say and Amazing. like culturally and um and then come back to tokyo and spend the rest of the trip there and do some side trips to smaller towns outside of tokyo and i also i've never been to the mori museum there which is like all contemporary and digital art and like i have to go the next time amazing oh my yeah. gosh and eat a lot of oh food um i would say my biggest regret from this trip is we ate way more 7-eleven food than usual <laughs> yeah and less like restaurant food because we like nothing was open on naoshima and i was like oh my god am i really gonna eat another meal from 7-eleven <laughs> not to be ungrateful better than boiled fish yeah it's true everything is better than boiled fish right i did oh i I think I mentioned this on our last trip where on the last day I was like, hmm, potato salad sandwich. I'm going to try it. And yeah. now I like. I bet it's good. It's so good. And I ate multiple potato salad sandwiches. Oh, yeah. I bet that's pretty good. Um, and I every time we would go to 7-Eleven, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to try something different this time to mixed results. Yeah. I'll say. Um, but yeah, lots. I ate so much 7-Eleven food. Now, of course, I'm <laughs> longing for it. But. On our last day, I was like, Dustin, we've eaten in a restaurant like three times on this whole trip. Like, we have to get our lives together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, did, did you get any sushi when you were out there? We did. Yeah, there's this place I like to go to in Shibuya that is like 
the conveyor belt sushi, but uh-huh. it's all like fresh made for you. Is it there's not a uh-huh. rotating thing. It's just a screen you order and it comes on the conveyor belt and uh, like directly to you. And then your screen goes ding dong and you like take it off. It's really great. Oh, that um, reminds me. I think I got to get some sushi this week. Yeah. Now that we're talking about it, mm-hmm. I want some sushi. Yeah. Um, yeah. So one sushi meal. Um, we went to this gyoza place in uh, Kyoto. It's called Chow Chow Gyoza. It's actually known as like a vegan place. I think it's in like that Happy Cow app or something. But it's not. Com- it, there's also non-vegan stuff there. Um, but they have these mashed potatoes gyoza. That I actually like think about regularly. <laughs> we went there. Um, we went to another gyoza place in Harajuku. There was like nowhere to eat in Harajuku, basically. Like I was like, what is going on? All the restaurants are closing and turned into like Nike stores or something. Oh, God. Awful. Yeah, bummer. But I will tell you, one of my favorite places to eat. I know sometimes people like want to hear Japan uh, trip tips and I feel weird doing that as like a white person who lives in Texas but if you do have questions you can always reach out to me I will just say one thing you can always count on is this place called Tea's Tan Tan and it's a completely vegan restaurant and they make this black sesame ramen that is super spicy get the vegan cheese added to it it's so good there's one in Tokyo Station there's another one in Wayno Station, and there are a few other ones around. And it is like one of my favorite things I've ever eaten. And I've tried to mimic this recipe. I haven't hit it yet, but I'm trying my hardest because wow. I don't think I can only have it every once in a while. <laughs> it's that good. You need it's to have it. that good. Oh, yeah. Wait, what is it again? It's it's black sesame ramen. So it's like a thicker oh, broth. Uh-huh. Um, it's spicy, but it's like very rich. Wow. And they have gluten-free noodles, um, where you can get regular ones. And you get this little ball of vegan cheese that you put in there and kind of like mix up. It's like cashew cheese. Uh-huh. And so it makes it even creamier. It's so good. Oh, the okay. best. The okay. best. Um, yeah, so we ate there, of course. Um, but yeah, we just didn't get as much restaurant time in as I would have liked. Like we came back and said, like, we barely ate any Japanese food. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of egg salad sandwiches. Lots of egg salad sandwiches, uh-huh. onigiri, like that kind of stuff. But yeah, na- you know, nary a wild parfait at all, which is like one of my favorite things to have there. Um, we were just like, go, go, go the whole time. But it was really fun. Um, well, we really appreciate it. We Thank you so much for bringing this back with you. Of course. It was super fun. And it was nice to be like, I have a mission. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's all we have for this week. Do you have anything else to add, Kim? Any thoughts? No, not really, but I, I have been listening to a podcast. Actually, we just finished the podcast because, you know, we were traveling a lot. And um, so we listened to podcasts. Um, but there's this one called Vanished, Gone with the Gods. And it is Ooh. fascinating. It's all about um, kind of the, the the cultural acceptance, kind of, I guess, of people who just go missing and decide to go missing for various reasons and how it's kind of part of um, the Japanese right to go missing. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's fascinating. Oh my gosh. Highly recommend that podcast. It was a really good listen. I'm definitely going to check that out because I've been feeling like a lot of my go-tos lately have been kind of disappointing. Well, listen to that one i will i will all right well everyone we'll talk to you in two weeks all right talk to you later bye bye bye